Well, good morning. Um, I'm excited to be able to preach in this series that Pastor Dwight began last week uh, called In All Things. And uh, we're going to be focusing on the topics for the, the next month. We're going to be focusing on the topics of the season, which are giving thanks or having a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. And uh, so I'm excited to be able to share in a part of this series. And Pastor Dwight opened up the series last week by talking about or talking, you know, from the scripture about uh, not being anxious about anything, but through prayer and thanksgiving, presenting your request to God. And what what happens that when we begin our prayer life or we uh, we involve a thankful heart or gratitude in our prayer life, what it does is it produces a peace and uh, that surpasses our understanding and it guards our hearts. And so I want to continue uh, on this topic or on this series in all things by talking to you from the topic, the stewardship of our attitude. The stewardship of our attitude. We have these sayings in culture, you know, attitude determines altitude. You know, or attitude is everything. And attitude definitely has a significant impact on our lives. And so I want to talk about the stewardship of our attitude because our attitude is one of the primary ways in which we show gratitude. It's one of the primary ways in which we show gratitude. I'd even argue, argue that attitude is a better indicator of the authenticity of our gratitude than what's coming out of your mouth. You know, uh, we know this because we've all experienced someone who has said thank you, uh, but their attitude seems to contradict what they're saying. Uh, how many of you have experienced, uh, you know, someone saying thanks out of obligation? It's because the attitude is in conflict with what's actually coming out of their mouth. And uh, I think if we were all honest, we could all say that uh, we have done the same thing where we have uh, said thank you, but it didn't our attitude didn't necessarily line up with that. And uh, I remember as a kid, my mom and dad raised us to say thank you. And uh, we did that in a lot of different ways. Uh, we would, you know, uh, at birthdays or Christmases when someone would, you know, give us a toy or give us a gift, uh, you know, we would say thank you there, or maybe they would, you know, mail us a, 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 thank, a birthday card and it had some money in it. And so my mom would always make sure, you know, that we would personally call them back and say thank you. Um, but then there were those moments where, uh, as a child, what you received did not necessarily solicit a genuine thanks. Because you, you'd receive a gift, because let's be honest, like, I know it sounds bad saying it, but not everything that you received at Christmas or your birthday was, like, something you were thankful for. How many of you have had, like, aunts and uncles that didn't really know you well enough to get you something that was, like, really meaningful? You know what I mean? And, uh, and so those situations are always awkward because you have to manufacture gratitude. And, um, you know, uh, with our family, you know, especially at birthdays and Christmases, uh, Christmas is like, what it is is, you know, every person, it's not, how many of you at Christmas, everyone opens gifts at the same time? Okay, not, not in our house. It was a rotation, you know? And so it's like, you'd watch people opening up the gift. And then there's always this pressure because you have 
uh, relatives that not, may not necessarily know you well enough, and they're doing their best to give you something, but then it's just that awkward moment where you have to be like, your, your thanks is like a question, you know, where it's like, thanks? You know, like, it, it, you're saying thanks, but the question that you're actually saying in the word is like, why? You know, why, why did I get this? I'll never forget, um, I have an uncle that happens to be my, my father's brother, and uh, I love my uncle. And uh, I think that at the time, what he really knew about me was just very limited as far as, like, what I liked in gifts and stuff. And so I knew that he knew that I liked football. And uh, I knew that at the time, uh, I've ceased to, you know, mature in my life. I liked the Browns at the time. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I didn't have any expectation about what I was going to get for this birthday. But I'll never forget, I opened up the gift. And it was, you know, there was maybe a 10 of us in the room. And it's that moment where you open something that you didn't expect to get, nor were you truly thankful for. And all eyes are on you. And so you, it's just that awkward moment because you know everybody knows that you're not really thankful. You're like, what is this? I'll never forget opening it. And I opened a foam brick. A foam brick that had written on it, bad call. And it was... Something that when you're watching a football game and a ref makes a bad call, you could throw it at the TV. This is what I got at nine. And let me just kind of let you know, you know you've missed the mark. If you've given something, you have to explain to the person you gave it to. I open it and I'm like, thank you. This is, this is going to Volunteers of America in about two months, but thank you. We all have been in points where, or moments in our lives where what the thanks that's coming in our, out of our mouth is not indicated by our attitude. They're in contradiction. And so I would say that our attitude demonstrates gratitude more than what comes out of our mouths. Um, you know, uh, we can say thank you out of obligation rather than sincere appreciation, and it shows in our attitude. So I want to talk about the stewardship of our attitude, uh, because as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to understand that our attitude is something that God wants us to steward, because our life is something that God wants us to steward. Our attitude is a part of our life, and God wants us to steward our lives well. And so that requires us to steward our attitude well. I don't know about you, but I'm living my life that one day I can stand before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And so if that's our desire, we need to understand that how well we faithfully steward our lives is what will cause Jesus to say, well done or not. How well we steward our lives, and, and I'll, I'll kind of explain what stewardship is because that's kind of a lost word in the vocabulary of our mo modern culture, but how well we steward our lives is what will determine 
uh, whether or not Jesus will, wait, will say, well done. And we will not hear well done because of our performance. We'll hear well done because of our faithfulness. That's what Scripture says. Scripture says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, you did an amazing performance. It's well done and faithful, good and faithful. The, the standard or the measurement will be our faithfulness. And that requires faithful stewardship of our lives and our attitudes. So as you know, before we continue on, let's just go ahead and pray. God, I thank you, Father, for this uh, season that we're in. God, as we are at the beginning of the holiday season. And I thank you, God, that we start the holiday season off with a holiday called Thanksgiving. Lord, I pray that we would not confine or restrict our heart of gratitude to a month out of the year. But Lord, that we would demonstrate what is due to you, Father, most consistently, Father, throughout our life. Lord, that we would have an attitude of gratitude, that we would show our appreciation for you, God, and what you've done, Father, and the people in our lives, Lord. So we just pray, Father, that we would be faithful stewards in Jesus' name. Amen. Our attitude is something that God wants us to steward because our life is something that God wants to steward. As we continue this morning, let me just kind of bring clarity to this word stewardship. And, you know, if, if, you know, if you're following along, go ahead and say amen. You guys aren't acting like we beat Maryland by like 70 points without Chase Young. And so, and you're, not act, you're acting like Alabama didn't lose to LSU. Hey, look, I'm low-key a, cheer, a, a, like a cheerleader for LSU because Joe Burrow was our third-string quarterback, and he beat Alabama. Come on, that's amazing. I saw this meme on Facebook that said Nick Saban, Nick Saban is 0-2 against third-string OSU quarterbacks. That's good news right there. So um, let's talk about stewardships. The definition of a steward is it is a person who manages something for an owner. A steward is something, someone who is a person who manages something for an owner. Think uh, landlord. Think of any management position in a business. What they really are is a steward. They are managing the, someone else's company. And there's obviously requirements and tasks and obligations and duties as a part of that. But the whole key to stewardship is that you are managing, not owning. See, stewards are managers. It's important for us to understand that they are managers. Stewards are not owners. They're managing something for someone else. The principle of stewardship is, uh, is talked about several times in the New Testament. One of those times is in 1 Peter 4.10 in regards to the gifts that God gives you. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, each of you should use whatever gift you have received. Now, the context is from the Lord to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The gifts that you have, your talents, your abilities, your abilities with people, your abilities to perform uh, tasks, whatever you have, your skill set is to be stewarded on behalf of God because you did not develop it. God gave it to you. Okay? Okay. Paul said in Acts, in him we move, we live, and we have our being. Everything that we possess comes from the Lord. We may have a job that we got hired for, but who gave you the capacity to do it? If, you may be able to problem solve on your job, but who gave you the intellectual capacity to do it? 
in him we live, we move, and we have our being. If God did not give you breath in your lungs to wake up today, you would not be here. It all comes back to what God has given us. Our gifts are to be stewarded. That's why the body of Christ needs everyone in the body to be doing something, to be serving someone with what you possess. You may not think that you have a lot, but what are you doing with what you have? Your gifts are not to be for yourself. They are to be stewarded to serve others because God has given you a grace in various forms to be able to use those things. See, one of the things that stewardship is all throughout the New Testament. One of the things that we have to understand is that stewardship is important because one of the ways that we show Jesus that he is really Lord over our lives is by choosing to see our lives now. Say now. As something we manage or steward for him, not for ourselves. See, I believe that, you know, with Ian and singing and his ability to sing, you know, we would stand, God would, he would stand before the Lord and he'd have to give account. How did you use what I gave you? Did you use it for yourself or did you use it for the kingdom? If you've got abilities use it for the kingdom because one of the that's one of the ways that we demonstrate Jesus's lordship in our lives is by managing what we have for him see one of the questions that we need to consider this morning if we are going to steward our lives and our attitude well is this how much of our lives are we still trying to own instead of manage for the lord how, how much of our lives are we holding back? Now, I don't want, want to go down the, the tithe trail, but it really applies to that. Is, is the money that you possess something that you own? Because if it is something that you see as the owner of instead of something to steward before the Lord, then you will make the choice on how much you give. You'll make the choice on whether or not you tithe because... Whatever you, I mean, it's not even about 10%. It's about saying, this is not my money. This is his money. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask and seek him for what I am supposed to do with what he's given in my bank account to steward well. See, that's an indication of every part of our life, where we choose to live, what type of house that we have. How we choose to spend our money. How do we choose to use our time. All of this is determining how much we say we own or we manage for him. So we have to ask ourselves, how much of our lives are we still trying to own instead of manage for the Lord? Paul actually addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20. And uh, the reason why he had to address it was because the Corinthian Christians were what I like to call, uh, they were compartmentalizing God's lordship over their life. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We can compartmentalize Jesus' lordship in our life. We can give to him the areas we want him to own and hold on to the areas that we want to own. Right. And this is what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 6. He was talking to Corinthian Christians, and first of all, I'm saying this because I know it is easy to do. 
It is easy to give our lives to Jesus, accept him as Lord, but the human tendency is to want to hold on to ownership of as much as possible. And so this is where the Corinthian Christians are, are, are at in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. They were giving lordship to Jesus in selective areas, but not necessarily every, everywhere. There were things in their lives they wanted to continue to be lord of. And one of those areas specifically was their sexual behavior. And he addresses it. See, what was happening was these Corinthian Christians, they didn't want Jesus to be lord over their sexual behavior. They were being and continuing to be sexually promiscuous and, Jesus, and God or Paul had to address it and say, is he a Lord of that area or have you compartmentalized Jesus's lordship in your life? And so he goes, he, it says this in 1 Corinthians. It says, have you for, forgotten? Because remember, I just said, now, now after Jesus, there's a change. He says this, he says in verse 19, have you forgotten that your body is now the sacred temple of the spirit of holiness who lives in you? See, what Paul suggests, even in this first verse, was that the Corinthian Christians were wrestling between stewardship and ownership. They were wrestling with this idea. You mean I have to surrender even my physical body to the Lord? He goes on, you don't belong to yourself any longer. For the gift of God, the Holy Spirit who lives inside your sanctuary, you are a temple now. Verse 20, you were God's expensive purchase paid for with tears of blood. So by all means, then use your body to bring glory to God. So he's talking about ownership versus stewardship. The New American Standard says you are not your own. How clear is the fact that we are not owners? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So he's dressing stewardship and ownership. So what Paul was trying to communicate to them is that Jesus is either Lord over it all or he is Lord not at all. You can't compartmentalize Jesus' lordship in your life because that very principle is incompatible with following Jesus. You remember when Jesus went up to uh, fishermen, that was their trade at the beginning of the Gospels, and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What did they have to immediately do? They had to immediately leave their nets. Why? Because in the moment that he called them to follow, they understood, I'm not an owner of a fishing company anymore. I am a steward of who I am following. Everything is now his. This is why Acts, the, the church in Acts was so radical. Because remember, Pastor Dwight talked about this with finances. They were selling homes, they were taking the retirement, and they were bringing it to the apostles' feet and saying, you know what? I don't own any of this anymore. The church owns it. Now, I'm not saying that I, I don't need a raise, guys. I'm good. Okay? I'm good. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the early church knew stewardship. They knew that when you give your life to Jesus, it's not about owning, compartmentalizing. It's about managing now. Because we were bought with a price, and we are not our own anymore. And so, um, before Christ, we owned our lives and did whatever we wanted to do. 
But after Jesus, we have to make the choice to give him ownership over our lives. And now we become stewards of what we used to own. See, before Jesus, I could do whatever I wanted with my money. Now, because of Jesus, I seek the Lord for what he wants to do. He wants me to do with his money. It's not when, when I used to write my tithe checks in the memo, I would write, thank you, Jesus. Because I knew, I knew that I went to Ohio State and got a history degree and I was teaching. But I knew I thanked him for the income from that because I'm not the one that developed the intellect. If he didn't give me the intellectual capacity to graduate from Ohio State University and then have the confidence to communicate clearly in an interview and then be able to give me the breath to get up and go to work on time, then I would not be receiving a paycheck. The default is I have a heart of gratitude because everything that I've become is because of Jesus. In him we move, we live, and we have our being. So I'm writing, thank you, Jesus, on my memo because I know I could not have the capacity to earn a dollar if he didn't put something inside of me that could cause me to make a living. It's that serious for me. Thank you, Jesus. See, he's a, we're stewards. Managing our lives is to be for his purposes. That's why Paul said... Use your body to bring glory to God. Managing our lives is to be for his purposes, his kingdom, his glory, his honor, and most importantly, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you understand that his, his will will never get accomplished through an animal? It is through people. And so there's a twofold reality to, to his will. There's a will that he requires in us, and then there's a will that he wants through us. There's a will in, and then a will through. And in order for his total will to come on the earth, there's a will for us, and in us, and through us. Because ultimately, his will in us is to get through us, to reach and impact the people for the kingdom. And so... A component of stewarding our lives is stewarding our attitude because God has a will for our attitude. Let's take a look at uh, God's will for our attitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is a very familiar passage of scripture uh, for most people uh, who have grown up in church. And uh, this passage of scripture, let me give you some background because I really want you to be able to see the context in which how what Paul is writing impacts. So Paul planted the church in Thessalonica about two to three years before he wrote this letter to them. And one of the things that was a major issue in the church was they were a young church and they were young Christians. And one of the things that they were struggling most with was they were experiencing a lot of persecution and they were experiencing a lot of their friends and family members dying for their faith. And what was one of the major things in the church in Thessalonica was they were misunderstanding when Jesus was going to return. And as a result, they started to get discouraged and they started to want to walk away from the faith because they had this expectation that Jesus was going to return before they would ever suffer. And so when you take that understanding 
of the context in which Paul was writing his letter to, what we're about to read really changes it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. He's writing this to that atmosphere. In everything, in your persecution, in your struggle, in your friends and family members dying for the faith you just gave yourself to, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you understand that means a little bit different when you understand the climate? That sounds, honestly, it sounds like Paul is trying to lead you in to just torture. But he says, in everything that you're going through right now, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Listen to me. God's will for our attitude is really simple. It is that we give thanks in all things. In all things. If we are to steward our lives well, then that requires that we demonstrate faithfulness in our attitude by giving thanks in the midst of all of the circumstances that we go through. So let's talk about really quickly because it's like, oh man. See, this is a really fun message, guys. Right, right. Let's just, by a show of hands, how many of you guys are your lives currently terrible? I'm kidding, don't raise your hand. <laughs> But give thanks in all circumstances. Be blessed. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let's talk about what that looks like and what giving thanks does to produce in us and through us God's will. Number one, what does gratitude or giving thanks in all things look like? Giving thanks in all things means that we are thanking God in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. We're not thanking God because of our circumstance, but we're thanking God in the middle of the circumstance. Yeah. It's not, thank you, God, that I lost my job. Right. It's not, thank you, God, that I, I'm sick. It's not, thank you, God, uh, for, for cancer. It's not, thank you, God, that I lost uh, a family member. It's not thanking God for what you're going through, but continually thanking God in the middle of what you're going through. God is not asking us to thank him for everything we go through, but to thank him in everything that we go through. See, we need to thank him in the highs, thank him in the lows, thank him in the abundance, thank him in the lack. Because I don't know about you, but my posture and my attitude and what I'm choosing to do in the middle of every circumstance that I would go through is this. I think Jesus has already done enough for us by shedding his blood on the cross for our salvation to give him thanks in all of our circumstances. I don't know about you guys, but if Jesus does not do another thing for me, that is enough. When we get into heaven, we're not going to thank God for what he did on November 10th of 2019. We are going to be gathering around the throne and thanking the lamb that he was slain. Right. Right. 
You know what that tells me? When we look at Revelation and we look that they are around the throne saying, holy, 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 glory, 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 be unto the lamb that was slain. What that tells me is that nothing in my life except for what he's already done will we glorify in heaven. Not, Not days from now. He's already died for me. That will be of utmost, that will be the thing that we will be most grateful for. In every circumstance that we go through, we are and can give thanks to God that he has already died. This is what that looks like. Jesus Christ has already done enough. And honestly, I I, I promise you, if he never does another thing for me, that's enough for me. That's enough for me. See, here's the thing about giving thanks in all circumstances. In order to give God thanks in all things, we have to understand something about gratitude. Gratitude is a choice, not an emotion. That's right. Yes. Do you know in your marriage, love is not an emotion, it's a choice? That's right. That's right. Gratitude is not an emotion. Gratitude is a choice. The reason why many of us, and I'm talking about myself, struggle with being grateful in all things is because we are depending on our circumstances to produce some form of gratitude. We may not say it out loud, but we will think it. If I can just get to the weekend, if I can just have this, if my life can just be different, guess what? You will arrive there and you will not have enough gratitude to sustain you because you will be looking for another thing to produce gratitude in you. Gratitude is a choice, not an emotion. It's something you bring into your circumstance. You do not rely on your circumstance to produce for you. Gratitude is what you bring into your circumstance. Because we will never have a circumstance awesome enough to sustain gratitude. It's a choice, not an emotion. We gotta bring it in. Gratitude is not an emotion, it's a choice. Just because our situation isn't good does not mean that God still is not good. And I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus, I am determined to not allow my circumstances to steal my gratitude for what Jesus has already done. See, your circumstances will want to steal that from you. And want to say, your circumstances talk. You know that, right? We know about the disciples who were in the boat with Jesus. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the storm. Jesus, physical Jesus. How many of us are praying for Jesus to show up in the flesh? That The dude is in the boat with them. The boat is rocking. And they come up to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, don't you care if we are going to die? Do they not understand that if they die, Jesus dies? Jesus is in the boat. The boat is being rocked. How, who told them that? Who told them that they were going to die? The, the wind and the waves did. That's why when Jesus looked at the wind, he said, shut up. Because the circumstance was talking to them. This literally was, he didn't talk to the waves, he talked to the wind. Because it was the wind that was producing the waves. That's why he said, shut up. Stop talking. Because it was the circumstance that we're going through that produced in them the thought that we are going to drown. Don't you even care? This is what Jesus, he's asleep in the boat. 
your circumstances will want to talk to you. So you have the choice to take gratitude into your circumstance instead of trying to re rely on the circumstance to produce a heart of gratitude. If God does never does another thing, he's still good. Amen. So that's what gratitude in all things looks like. It looks like we're not giving thanks God, to God for the circumstance, but we're still giving thanks to God in the circumstance. So what is God, what is gratitude or giving thanks in all things look like? Or I'm sorry, what does giving thanks do in us to bring about God's will in us and through us? The first is this. I got three points. First is this. Giving thanks to God in all things removes the power that our circumstances have over our emotions. It removes the power. It is not God's will for our attitude to be controlled by our circumstances or by our emotions. See, when you choose to give thanks to God in all circumstances, this is what happens. What it does is it shifts our focus off of our circumstances to God, who is bigger than what we're going through. And when we do that, it gives us a better perspective of what we're going through because when we are more mindful of something bigger than what we're going through or the difficult circumstances that we're going through, what it will do is demagnify how big they are. What you need to do or what happens when you give thanks to God in your circumstance, you invite something bigger into your circumstance than your circumstance. And what it does is it reduces and demagnifies it from how big you think it is. We know this because there have been situations or there's been situations in my life that I have, that I have magnified that I thought are so big and so crazy. But when I make the choice to give thanks in worship instead of looking to my circumstance to produce gratitude, I get into God's presence and somehow that thing that I thought was so big doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because it has become demagnified when I magnify. I just invited something bigger into my circumstance. And it reduces the size of the thing and its degree of influence. See, I love Apostle Paul because Paul had big issues, but his issues didn't have him. See, some of us our issues control us. Our issues produce emotions that steer our ship. And if you look at Paul, look at Paul's laundry list in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. I because like I get halfway through it and I'm like, okay, enough, enough, Paul. I get it. It says, I have, in verse 23, I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the moon. A move. I've been in danger from rivers and dangers from thieves and dangers from my fellow Jews and dangers. Like, okay, Paul, I get it. You got issues. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Yet in spite of all that Paul went through, every issue that he had, look at what he said in Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, I am, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate. I would think that Paul's probably an expert on coming to this conclusion because of everything that he went through. Paul had big issues, but his issues didn't have Paul. This is where we can get to when we give thanks in all circumstances. See, our gratitude in all things will reground us in the truth that no matter what we're going through, God has not departed. He's never left us nor forsaken us. He's not abandoned us. And he is greater than anything that we go through. But it is a choice not an emotion. Yes. Giving in thanks in all things removes the power of our circumstances, our power our circumstances have over our emotions. I love what Bill Johnson says here. He says, the choice to be grateful in all circumstances bypasses the limitations of your emotional condition. Because we all have limitations in our emotional condition. You know how I know that? Because every one of us will hit a ceiling where we will emotionally come to the conclusion we can't do anymore. What he says is when you give thanks, it bypasses the limitations of your emotional condition and will begin to activate our emotional condition to get into line with what we are doing. Take that and apply it to your circumstances. Take that and apply it to your marriage. When you choose love, even though you may not feel it, you will bypass the limitations of your emotional condition and then your, then your emotions will begin to get in line with what you're doing. It's no different. Number two, giving thanks is the means by which we can access God's promises, God's perspective, and God's provision. See, Psalms 104, we know the scripture. It says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Now, it's, that word in the Hebrew also means through thanksgiving. And what that tells us is that gratitude or thanksgiving is actually a gateway. It's where we go from one place into another place. This scripture tells us that gratitude is a gateway that we walk through to receive from the Lord something we didn't have before we chose gratitude. That's why he said enter into his gates through thanksgiving. Where, where are we going in that scripture? We're entering into his presence. In other words, you can experience the absence, absence of his manifest presence until you begin to give thanks. And then when you walk through that gate, you step into his presence. And so this is what he's saying. He's talking about the fact that gratitude is a gateway that you will walk through. Let me uh, show you a couple of examples of that. I'm not even going to read the passages of scripture, but if you want to write this down, Mark 6, 35 through 44. Mark 6, 35 through 44. 5,000 people, particularly 5,000 men, because at the time they didn't really count the children and the women, so it was more than that. 5,000 people are hungry. Jesus is with his disciples. The disciples come, to him, come up to him and they're stressed out. How are we going to feed all these people? Why don't we send them away so they can get their own? And then uh, Andrew, Philip's, or Peter's brother, comes up and says, hey, there's a guy over here with a couple loaves of uh, bread and some fish. Why don't we just, so what does Paul, Jesus do? He says, bring him to me. Because Jesus knows that according to what he's experienced, five loaves and two fish is enough to feed this multitude. Come on. 
But what he knows is something the disciples don't know. He just knows that if he would walk through the gate of gratitude, that would become something that could feed. It's a way in which to access a miracle. So what, what Jesus does is he grabs it. And do you remember what the scripture says? He said, thank you, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know when you think that you need more, if you would thank, you, thank God with what you would have, miraculously it would become enough. Even if it's not in the multiplication of finances, but it could be your perspective. Uh -huh. Oh, you don't need that TV anymore. Right. You don't need that car anymore. You don't need to keep up with the Jones anymore. See, if you would just thank God with what you already have, yeah. it'll actually bring promotion, perspective, provision. Yeah. Amen. In some form, it enhances where you are. So Jesus blesses and thanks God for what everyone else doesn't think is enough, and then miraculously, through entering through the gate of gratitude, he accesses a miracle. This is what Mark 6, 35 through 44 uh, tells us. Then and there's another time. John 11, 34 through 44, Lazarus is dead. Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? Mary and Martha are perplexed. They're freaking out. They're so upset at, at Jesus. And Jesus stands before the tomb, and before he even prays, he thanks God that he already answers his prayer. Amen. He says, Father, I thank you that you answer every one of my prayers. He hadn't even prayed yet. <laughs> Why? Because he knew you enter into his gates with thanksgiving. I'm just going to start out with gratitude because I know I can walk through that gate and access something that I have as a result of that that I didn't have before. So... He thanks God for a prayer he hasn't even prayed yet. He prays it, and then Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. You access things that you do not have when you walk through that gate. The point is that Jesus knew that through the gate of gratitude, he could access God's promises, God's perspective, or God's provision in spite of his circumstances. If, now, giving thanks is the means by which we access God's promises, but let me just go somewhere. If giving thanks is the means by which we access God's promises, then what do you think we do to cut ourselves off from God's promises? We complain. Come on. Let's talk about it. The opposite of gratitude is grumbling and complaining. Bill Johnson said this. This one stuck with me. If we enter into God's gates through thanksgiving... Whose gates do you think we enter through through complaining? Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'll take it a step further. Wow. Maybe we don't enter into the enemy's gates through complaining. Maybe we open the door for the enemy to enter through our gates. Right. If we enter into his gates with thanksgiving, whose gates do you think we enter through through complaining? You, you ever wonder why complaining requires no effort? It is like default. Like, gratitude is difficult. Complaining is easy. Maybe it's because the enemy loves to make stifling the goodness of God easy for us. We just start to complain. Start to grumble. Now, I want you to understand, complaining will cause us to wander through life only seeing the promises of God from a distance. And never actually experiencing it for ourselves. 
We will go through life wondering why everyone else is experiencing God's promises but us, without realizing that our complaining is what has cut us off from them. That's not my opinion. Let's go to Scripture. Israel has been delivered from Egypt. They have cried out for decades for God's deliverance. God brings Moses to Egypt, delivers all of Israel. Anybody here walk through a sea on dry land? They walk through the Red Sea on dry land. All of Pharaoh's army gets destroyed in the Red Sea. They confront the Amalekites. Moses lifts up his hands on the battlefield. The sun stands still, and as long as his hands are lifting, they win. Y'all, God ships food to them every day. And then on the weekends, not to violate the Sabbath, he gives them double. So they can rest on the Sabbath. He's like, I'm going to go ahead and give you two times so that you don't have to work on the Sabbath. Every single day. Then they've experienced miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Then he says, all right, we're about to go into the promised land. So he sends out spies. And then what happens? Numbers 14. They come back with the report. And it says this. All of Israel, uh, uh, it says this in verse 1. All the Israelites grumbled and complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. See, what y'all lost perspective on is you were dying in Egypt. And thousands of you already died in Egypt. If only we have died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Verse 3, why is the Lord? See, now they're starting to blame God for his deliverance. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Who has died in the wilderness yet? Who said, who said they were going to die? The circumstance did. Because the circumstance will talk. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So they're out in the middle of of the wilderness between where God took them out of and where God is taking them into, and they're complaining and grumbling. And look at God's response in verse 28 and 29. So God says to Moses, listen, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census, and who has what? Complained. Because of their grumbling, a generation died knowing the promises of God, but never experiencing them for themselves. They could see the boundary to the promise and never cross it. They could see the promises from a distance. Now, this is really interesting. This is fascinating. I can't wait. Okay, I'll say it now. This word grumbling in the Hebrew has a very interesting meaning. It's the Hebrew word loon. And this is what it means. It means to complain, 
but it also means to stay overnight. To stay overnight. So literally, listen to me. So literally, because of their complaining, God caused them to have another night stay in the wilderness. And another night led to another night, led to another night, led to another night, led to 40 years of nights where they never stepped into the promises of God because they decided to stay in the complaining hotel. You want to know how you can just die in the middle of where God brought you out of and where God was bringing you into? Just continue to complain. Because your complaining will bring another night and another night. And you'll stay overnight and overnight and overnight again and again and again in the same place and never move forward. The reason why God could not allow them to move forward with a complaining attitude is because they, were, they would have cowered at Jericho. When the opposition would have got more difficult, they would have complained and walked backwards. And so he literally had to allow a generation to die overnight in the wilderness so that he could get a younger generation with a fresh perspective, not tainted, to step in and access the promise. Giving thanks is the means by which we access God's promises, and complaining is the way we cut ourselves off from them. Last one. This kind of ties into that second point, but it's something more specific. Gratitude gives us a God-given grace to endure all things. It gives us a God-given grace to endure all things. How does gratitude do that? How many of you understand that when we practice gratitude, it produces an attitude of humility because gratitude counteracts pride? You know a prideful person? They probably don't say thanks a lot because their focus is on themselves. Practicing gratitude acknowledges that we have benefited from God and from others in our lives. And so what gratitude naturally does is it produces humility. Gratitude naturally protects you from pride because as you continue to practice it, it preserves in you a heart of humility as you acknowledge how grateful you are for God and for others. Can I tell you something? You know what complaining does? It pr produces pride as well. Complaining produces pride. How did Satan fall? Because he started to complain. And it produced a pride that caused him to be deceived, to believe that he could do it better. Why do you think the Israelites came to the conclusion to, through complaining, let's just go back to Egypt? Because somewhere along the line, the complaining produced a pride in them that they thought better than God did. And so Egypt is really better than what he has for us. It was a pride issue. Complaining will produce pride. And so the scripture tells us that we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. I'm closing in a minute. I hope you all don't fall asleep on me. <laughs> same attitude as Christ Jesus, and his attitude was one of humility. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we know this. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. 
He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So if Jesus' attitude was one of humility and the practice of gratitude produces a heart of humility in us, then how does that connect to God giving us a grace for, to endure all things? Very simple. James 4, 6. God resists you when you are proud, but continually pours out grace when you're humble. You see the connection? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that Jesus knew that if he did not humble himself, it would have cut him off from a God-given grace that he needed to endure all the things he went through. He actually, you guys have to understand that humility is an eternal thing. And so Jesus knows, I'm going to strip myself of the divinity and become a man. And in that um, exercise of humility, I will actually gain access to a God-given grace to endure the cross. Because God opposes the proud, but he continually pours out grace on those who humble themselves. And so Jesus knew the key to enduring all things was humility. Because in humility, I will access the grace I need to endure them. When Paul commanded us to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, he commanded it because he knew that through giving thanks in all circumstances, we would be given the God-given grace to endure all circumstances. So many times, we want God to deliver us from the circumstance when we need God to deliver our attitude in the circumstance. Yeah, right. We want God to set us free from the issue. Did not God say, in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God can deliver us from circumstances. He can do that. But I think more often, he wants to see us humbled to access the grace to go through it. Humility will give us the grace to go through the situations that we want God to deliver us from. Gratitude gives us a God-given grace. See, what giving thanks, I could have the worship team come forward. What giving thanks does in us to bring about God's will in us and through us is, number one, it removes the power of our circumstances, power our circumstances has over our emotions. Number two, it is the means by which we access God's promises, perspective, or provision. And three, it gives us a God-given grace to endure all things. I believe that as followers of Jesus, we will actually be at our best when we are most grateful. We will be at our best when we are most grateful because we are at our best when we're right in the middle of God's will. And if giving thanks in all circumstances is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, then there will be no better place for us to be than be giving thanks to him in the middle of what we're going through. Gratitude is not something we get through someone laying hands on us. It's a choice we make. I heard a pastor say, all too often in the body of Christ, we want people to impart to us through the laying out of hands what comes naturally through choices. 
can't impart gratitude. You got to practice it. It's the faithful stewardship of our attitude. Exercising an attitude of gratitude is how we demonstrate faithful stewardship. Let's, we'll, let's just go ahead and stand. This, this is what I want to do. I actually uh, told Ian, or asked Ian, I did not tell him. I asked him if we could end with the last song on the set of worship because I know that in the room uh, we are all going through a myriad of circumstances and situations. And what I, my prayer has been that this moment as we choose to focus on God and we choose to give him thanks, I, I just, my prayer has been that this would be a pattern that we step into where we choose to, to give him thanks in the midst of our circumstances. Gratitude is not something uh, that we just do for a month. It really is part of the lifestyle of every follower of Jesus. And so I just pray um, as we just worship in this time and as we focus on God, that God would give us grace, that we would become more humble, that we would access God's promises, his provision, his faithfulness, and that we would just be faithful stewards of our lives. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, let's worship the Lord just as we close. Thank you for the cross that you have carried. Thank you for the blood that was shed. You took the weight of sin upon your shoulders. Sacrifice your life so I could live. Now nothing is holy. Redeemer of my